Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Midnight Assassin. Lizzie Borden took an axe. Nine years later, in a rural town in Iowa, Margaret Hasek, mother to ten children, raised an axe and butchered her husband John as he slept in their bed. Or did she? Come along as we investigate this fascinating case that has more than one parallel to the Lizzie Borden murders. Our guides are husband and wife team Thomas Wolfe and Patricia Bryan. Their book, Midnight Assassin. Welcome, Patricia and Thomas, to Murder Most Foul. Thanks, Jim. We're Thank delighted you. to be here. We are. So, folks, before we get into the gory details of the case, uh, why don't you guys give us a little uh, background on um, the time, uh, the the area and um, of the country, and uh, our main uh, folks here, uh, the Hasek's, Margaret and John, and their family. Well, John and Margaret Hasek met each other actually in Illinois um, in the mid-1860s, shortly after the Civil War. Um, Margaret's uh, parents owned a large farm in, in Illinois, in central Illinois, and John Hasek worked there as a farmhand, but he had aspirations to own his own farm. And in 1867, he went to Iowa, crossed the river, and bought a farm, came back, and he married Margaret and brought Margaret with him. Um, and they lived at first in a very small um, dwelling in a very rural and isolated area of, of uh, Iowa. But eventually he um, farmed that area and uh, his farm, I believe, grew to be about 150 or 160 acres. Um, over the next 20 some years, they had 10 children, nine of whom who lived to a, adulthood, uh, boys and, and girls. Um, and then on the night of December 1st, 1900, um, John Hasek was assaulted and killed in his bed. And I would say just to set the stage, um, it was a very difficult life for both the men and the women at the time. The men, obviously, especially during the growing season, worked outside under sweltering, in sweltering weather, um, dealing with the animals, the crops, um, harvesting, planting. The women were more contained in the household, but they worked incredibly hard. And whereas the men gathered together in town to discuss the weather, growing conditions, to socialize, the women had very few outlets like that. They went to church, saw each other there, but they were isolated with their children in their homes, in the farm house. Um, and they, you know, they had cleaning, laundry, there was no electricity, no running water. Um, they took care of the chickens, 
they worked incredibly hard and got very, had very few rewards. They weren't paid for their work. The men controlled the finances. The men owned the property in their name. The women were basically treated like farm animals, according to um, the Department of Agriculture had said that. The women were treated like farm animals. Um, and I will read this one um, little song, a song expressed the female plight and said women were, quote, always controlled, they're always confined, controlled by their family until they are wives, then slaves to their husbands the rest of their lives. And I think that's a good summation of the position that women at that time were in on a rural farm. So now if, if the family, and this will come out, uh, a lot of this information, of course, comes out in a trial after. It might be information that neighbors aren't aware of, some of them, uh, certainly doesn't raise to the level of, of authorities. Um, but things could be going on behind closed doors that uh, no one knows about. But uh, Margaret did uh, reach out, as we find out in the trial testimonies, that she did reach out um, to neighbors uh, to try to get an outlet or an, or an explanation of, of that, of that, you know, things were a little bit rougher than just being an Iowa farm wife. Yes. She had apparently talked to the neighbors and this is according to the neighbor's testimony later, as you say, Jim, at the inquest um, th that she was afraid of her husband, that he had threatened her and her children with knives and guns um, th that he had stopped her one night from escaping. She had tried to leave the house and she did eventually leave, leave the house, escaping through a window, um, as was testified by the neighbors. Um, she never admitted that, but she had gone to the neighbors seeking help. The men did nothing for her. They talked about whether John Hasek should be confined to an insane asylum, but he was a well-respected, prosperous farmer, um, friend to the men um, who had wives of their own and felt that this should be a family matter. If there were troubles in the family, they didn't want to hear about it. There was nothing they could do. Um, and Margaret and her children should not be talking about him behind his back. They really blamed Margaret for trying to intrude on their lives by talking about their friend, John Hasek. Now, there was a, there was a, um, which is, you know, is impactful on the trial that a, a year before uh, the, the, um, the incident that the men did get together and decide that maybe an intervention was a good idea, but of course they weren't going to participate. So Tom, why don't you tell us about what that intervention, which was about a year before uh, the murder, what the, how that came down. Right. Um, the intervention, um, as you're saying, was about a year before the, before the crime. And it occurred um, the day after Margaret had successfully climbed out a window and gone to a neighbor's house for, um, for support, for help, um, and to complain about the treatment that she was getting at home. So this neighbor um, came with several other neighbors, men, and came to the Hasek farmhouse. They returned Margaret 
to the situation in which she felt that she was being, that she was in danger. And the men, the neighbor men, talked to Margaret and the children and said that we do not want to hear more news about troubles in the family. Basically, they told the, the family, you know, they didn't speak directly to John, they, they spoke to Margaret and the children, that um, basically sort of under the notion of family privacy, that um, issues like this shouldn't be kept inside the family. You should, and nobody should be coming to the neighbors talking about how awful life is under the roof with John, John Hasek. So they left Margaret there. Um, that was, I believe, Thanksgiving of 1899. So the crime that occurred December 1st was one year and two days after that particular intervention. And an important evidence for the defense or important piece of evidence was that after that intervention, Margaret and her children did not talk about the abuse. Um, the defense argued that there had been a reconciliation um, on after the neighbors came to the house. And, you know, whether you believe that there was a reconciliation or you believe that Margaret took it to heart, that she wasn't going to get any help from the neighbors. So she would have to take it on herself to do something, you know, that so there was no more talk to the neighbors about the troubles. And in fact, on the Thanksgiving dinner, which was two days before the murder, we only have the testimony of the children. Um, and there was a neighbor that Margaret spoke to that morning but that there, it was a happy family occasion. There was no arguing, according to anyone, um, which again is somewhat proof or was went to prove that there had been a reconciliation and the family had come together. John Hunter. And at this Thanksgiving was a couple of elder, uh, older children who didn't live in the house. Is that correct? So they weren't, they sort of would come, obviously they had contact with their parents, but so they were coming in fresh, not, you know, 24 seven in the house. And there was no indication from them that anything was amiss. Right. And there were two married daughters who came with their husbands and um, one son um, who lived on a, on a neighboring farm where, where he worked. So it was very much of a family gathering, both uh, family that lived in the house, family that used to live in the house, and um, had come for this Thanksgiving dinner, which everyone described as a very joyful event. Except three days later, let's uh, go to Saturday night, um, a, a typical night, uh, dinner chores finished, and again, pointing out that it's December, so it's a little more relaxed. You're not out in the field until uh, sundown. And so uh, tell us about that that evening of uh, December 1st. Well, a very important incident happened in the afternoon, or as it got dark, um, it was snowing. John Hasek, the son, um, had been using an axe to chop wood, the same axe he had used to kill the turkey um, that they ate on Thanksgiving. Um, and he had left the axe outside in the yard. And John Hasek, the father, told Ivan, the 13-year-old, to go out and put the axe in the shed so that it wouldn't be covered by the snow. Ivan, who was used to doing what he was told, went out, got the axe, as he says, brought it to the shed. He couldn't remember whether he had put it inside the shed or 
underneath the shed where it was eventually found. Um, he came back to the house. They sat up for a little while, but of course, everyone was tired. Um, they went to bed. John Hasek had trouble sleeping. He came out at one point, talked to Margaret, went back to bed. Margaret said she then went in bed later, went to bed. He was sound asleep. She went, got in bed. She slept on the outside of the bed. He slept next to the wall. Um, it was a small bed, not a double bed. They slept very close together. And she was on the outside. He was up against the wall. Yeah, I was just going to say to set the scene a little bit. Um, they slept back to back. And John Hasek was facing the wall. Margaret was facing the door. Um, but as Patricia said, it's a very small bed, what they call it was like three, a, quarters, three bed. quarters bed, which is about three quarters the size of what is today a uh, double bed. So just slightly bigger than a twin bed today. And there is a nice ground plan in your book, first couple of pages, I believe, that sketches that out very clearly where the bed is. Um, uh, who, you know, uh, who's sleeping next, obviously, with a little star on it, the bloody star for, John, very clever, for John Hasek. And uh, so very clear uh, what any assailant, whether it's her or someone from the outside, what they would have to negotiate to uh, accomplish the crime. Right. And I might just point out about the house also, this was a two-story house, and it was um Really, because John Hasek was relatively prosperous, it was one of the nicest houses in the neighborhood. Um, he had the money to build this house, which was built, I believe, um, about 10 years before, before the crime. But on the first floor, there were two bedrooms, the one that John and Margaret slept in, and the one that the two youngest boys, Ivan and Jimmy, who were ages 13 and 16, slept in. And above them, there were two bedrooms occupied by the three older children, Will, who was 18 years old. Uh, May, who was 20, and Cassie, who was 26. So it was a fairly large house for a family of that size at that, at that time. But just to give a sense of the layout, we'll sort of set up um, listeners for what happens next. It was a nice house, but they were all sleeping very close together. Um, the bedrooms were not large. There was not a lot of space. Um, so... Yes, that sets the stage. Margaret claimed that this was her testimony, that she woke in the night hearing, she was awoken by hearing a, a sound, which was a sound of two boards being struck together. Um, she claimed that she thought she heard the door close. She lit a lamp, couldn't see what had happened, but she went out the door, called up the staircase to her children and said, I think that something is the matter with Pa. The children. The children from upstairs heard her call. Um, so they came downstairs, um, Will, Cassie, and May, and with Margaret went into the bedroom where they saw John Hasek. Um, he had been struck twice in the head with an ax. The first blow we learned later was from the sharp edge of the act, and the second blow was from the flat edge of the act, so that the initial blow went five and a half inches into his skull. Um, the second blow sort of shattered that same area. Um, the blows were struck very quickly, um, and then 
whoever was the assailant, um, left the room. Surprisingly, John Hasek was still able to talk. Um, and the two younger children at some point came into the room and Ivan, the 13 year old was crying and asked what had happened. And his father said, um, I'm just hurt, not killed. I mean, he obviously was not killed. He was talking. Um, but of course it, there was one light. It was a very dark house. Um, they were very isolated two of the children ran across the field to get a neighbor. Um, the neighbor then came to the house. Another, he notified another neighbor who then took a horse to run, get the doc, to run, notify other doctors, the other people in the neighborhood. Right. There was a, there was a doctor not who lived in the, in the neighborhood. Um, and just an interesting kind of detail. He's the, he owned a, a telephone. Um, but he was the only person in the neighborhood to have a telephone, so nobody could call him. <laughs> um, but he was uh, he was alerted by this um, neighbor who came on horseback. Anyway, there was a doctor there while John Hasek was still alive, but there was nothing that the doctor could do to save his to save his life. Um, other neighbors were notified and came to the house. We don't know exactly how many people were in the house, but as John. Hasek lay there dying, and he was there for, um, he lived for nine and a half hours from the time of the attack until um, early morning. Yeah, he was notified at 2 a.m., and he didn't get there until 4.30 a.m., so John Hasek had been lying there in bed um, for several hours, and he was still alive when the doctor came. Now, based on, based on that timing, when did the first authority arrive? When he was still alive or after he had passed? Um, no, I think he, he was he was deceased at the time that the sheriff and the county attorney um, arrived because this uh, farm was um, 10 to 15 miles away from Indianola, which was the county seat. And somebody had to go by horseback to the county seat to alert the sheriff and the coroner. And then they had to come by horseback. Um, and Margaret, for, Margaret attended to John during this time, did she not? She yes. did. According to the doctor, who was an outsider, um, she held his hand. She gave him water. He never spoke to identify who had attacked him. He died um, early that morning, but the uh, authorities didn't get there until after 10 a.m., um, so it was quite some time, although still not that long after he had been attacked. So obviously then they start an investigation, you know, just with what they have. They don't have a murder weapon in their hand. How was the axe discovered? Um, the neighbors and the um, Hasek children, the male children, went looking apparently and found the axe under this shed. And that was, as Patricia pointed out earlier, um, uh, um, Ivan, who was was told to put the axe in the shed, so there was that becomes an important sort of fact that needs to be resolved, or an issue that needs to be resolved um, during the during the investigation as to where the axe had been put the night before. But it was found under the shed, and there was blood on it, and there were hairs on it. Although that axe had been used to kill a turkey, on. Um, uh, on Thanksgiving two days earlier. And I believe there's evidence that the dog, the family dog, whose name was Shep, um, often slept under the um, shed or lay under the shed. So there were dog hairs there also. 
and turkey hairs. And turkey hairs uh, on the X. Yeah, but it became a very important piece of evidence as to where Ivan had put the X because the defense argued that had it been Margaret, she would have put the ax back where it was. Whereas an intruder having rushed through the house would have thrown the ax under the shed. And you know, one important piece of evidence also was that there were no, there were no blood spots um, from the bedroom to the door. And that was an important point for the prosecution because they argued, well, it was an important point for, it was something argued by both of them, but the prosecution argued only a woman would have put a rag under this dripping ax to protect her floor. Um, But that was interesting. Um, There was no evidence of an intruder. Um, Nothing was stolen, nothing was disturbed. And you can imagine an intruder would have had to hit the blows very quickly and then would have rushed out, um, not taking the ax with him or her, just throwing it, um, which makes it somewhat hard to believe, especially because she testified she was not woken. She did not awake, even though the ax would have had to reach over her to hit him. Now, Tom, why don't you tell us about the one of the other things that was fit? We don't have blood spots going down the uh, out to the the exit, you know, coming out of the bedroom. What what was um, Margaret's uh, f- uh, physical appearance? Uh, you know, vis a vis her clothing. Well, the we know that that a great deal of blood was shed from the um, blow of the axe because there was blood on the walls in the bedroom. So whoever struck the blows, you would expect would have blood on them. Um, the prosecuting attorney, the county attorney, George Clammer, um, suspected from the beginning that Margaret was the assailant. And after he came to the house uh, that, that morning, he took Margaret upstairs along with a neighbor woman named Sue Hemstreet so that um, he could examine her clothes. What was discovered on the chemise that she was wearing was that there was blood on the back of her chemise, but none on the front. Um, so that was a key piece of evidence that was, as it turns out, was not preserved and could not be presented later at trial. But the blood on Margaret at the um, investi- at the time of the investigation was on her back, not on her front. I think that is definitely in her favor, um, because no matter what position her, if, if she had her back to him or front, what, it doesn't matter if she's the one doing the blows, she's going to have it on her front. Uh, regardless. So it, depending on her position, she could be, if she were facing him and it was an assailant, she'd get it on the front. If she had her back to him and there was an assailant, she'd have it on her back. But in no, I can't figure out any way that it can be her and have nothing on the front unless she's sort of doing this over her head or something. Or changed. You know, that or was changed. Of, that was or changed. the prosecution's argument that there had been a long time between the attack and when she called her children. So she had taken time perhaps to clean up the blood, perhaps to change. Um, And, you know, so that was evidence that pointed to her. Now they never found other than the chemise 
clothes that were bloody. Now, but- that sounds a little bit like Lizzie Borden, of course, who you do cover the parallels in your book, which I uh, I enjoy being a Lizzieophile, in that the same thing that she, in her case, she killed or she's accused of killing two people uh, a bit of time apart, but not enough, especially the second killing her father, there was not enough distance to, to go take a shower if she had one. But that, so again, it comes in, did she change? Did she burn the clothing? Did she uh, did she do the second murder naked? Which we love that concept, you know, so at least she didn't have to clean clothing. So yes, uh, clothing, even in that early time, which was not law and order and NCIS, um, you know, logic uh, in, intuition tells you, you know, unless you can find some, some clothing, if we want to say this is what she was wearing, it does not make sense she's the assailant. Be that as it might, they set up an inquest, do they not? Tell us about the inquest. Well, yes, it was held that morning, the morning after the murder. Um, men in the neighborhood were called to be a jury of three. They had neighbors testify. They had Margaret testify. They had her children testify. The neighbors, the main piece of evidence that the county attorney focused on was that the neighbors talked about that they knew that Margaret had been afraid of her husband, that they knew that talked about the time she had come to them, had asked for help, had asked them to try to quiet her husband. They all testified to that. And of course, as the county attorney saw that, it gave her a motive. When he questioned Margaret, she denied that she had ever had trouble with her husband. Um, And, you know, to the county attorney, well, that she was a liar, which made the fact that she said she was asleep when the blows were struck even more doubtful. That was doubtful on its own. Um, But she also denied what all of the neighbors testified to, that she had been afraid of her husband. And um, I would just add one other point here, one sort of very curious thing that came up during the inquest, which was that Margaret was asked whether or not she was jealous of her husband. And there were two different neighbor women who were asked a similar question, which was, what can you tell us about the question we have not asked you? And they... The questioners don't go into detail or explain what that question is, but the women seem to know that the question refers to whether or not Margaret might have been jealous. So the inquest jury at least briefly explored the notion that there might have been someone else with a motive, that perhaps John Hasek had an improper relationship with some other woman in, in the neighborhood. But it was a line of questioning that was dropped. Although, as Patricia said, Margaret claimed that she um, she was in the bed, she did not assault him, that they had not had troubles in the past year. And in fact, I think she closed her testimony by saying, gentlemen, I hope you don't think I did this. I loved him too much. Well, and it's interesting, too, because as the men listened to her, they said they did not believe that she was telling the truth. And they said, watch what you say. The ghost of John Hasek is listening. Was that going to make her more truthful? (laughs) Hard to know um, exactly what they thought the point of that was. And again, Um, at the scene, John Hasek's body was in the next room. They conducted the inquest in a room adjacent to where the dead body lay. 
and it didn't take them long it was a couple of days later when there was the at the funeral that she was then arrested to be charged correct correct a couple of days later she was walking away from the gravesite the burial ground with her children supported by her brother she was elderly her brother was elderly the children made sort of a circle around her the sheriff who had been waiting in his buggy at the bottom of this path went up to her and said you have to come with me um and he led her to the waiting buggy he was there his deputy sheriff was there and his wife they rode to the jail where margaret was locked in and the the sheriff's wife was uh her name was marcia hodson and really from the time that margaret was arrested at the cemetery at the new virginia cemetery up until the trial margaret um and marcia hodson were very close and marcia hodson was a, a comfort and a support um and um I can't say that she believed that Margaret was innocent necessarily, but she certainly was supportive of Margaret. But while she was in in the jail and then during the trial, sat next to Margaret. And as we have to point out here, for those of us, those of you not uh, aware that again in 1900 there were no women on juries; they did not have the right to vote or to be on a jury. And so these were 12 men from the community uh and uh sitting in judgment over um over a woman and so um the as we pointed out the the prosecuting attorney was a, a gentleman named clamor and this was i believe you say in your book his uh, first big trial he was 28 years old and she had a uh a re margaret had a reasonably good defense team which was not cheap at the time 500 retainer 1900 with a $15, $1,500 bonus if you get an acquittal. So let's set up, um, so we can get a little taste for the audience where there's, a, and it's all in the book, but we can play a little role playing here. You guys pick who you want to be. Someone will be the prosecution, some will be the defense, and just sum up uh, the presentation at that trial of each side. Well, I'll take the prosecution. I think there's a very strong case that shows that goes to prove that Margaret did it. Um, first of all, the story that she was sleeping next to her husband when the attack occurred is totally unbelievable. The attacker would have had to reach over her um, to strike these two very specific blows. Um, first with the blunt, first with the sharp end, and then with the blunt end. Um, it's impossible to believe she could have slept through that. She called her children instead of turning to her husband first, which seems unnatural in a way. There was certainly evidence from what the children said that the blood had formed a clot, which would not have happened if she had gone immediately to call her children. Um, and most significantly, the fact that she had talked to the neighbors about her fear of her husband. Um, who else had a motive to kill John Hosick? She had a very strong motive, and all of the evidence points to her. There was no evidence of an intruder. Nothing was disturbed or stolen. Um, it, it seems 
completely reasonable, without reasonable doubt, that Margaret Hasek was the guilty party. Guilty. Oh, I'm sorry. No. Okay. Uh, Thomas, uh, let's see if we can get her off. Well, from my perspective, I think there definitely is reasonable doubt. And I think it's evidenced by what we see here in the courtroom. All of her children have testified that she was a loving mother um, and a responsible wife, and that over the past year, there had been no troubles in the family. So there was no motive on the night of the murder for Margaret Hasek to strike out at her husband. Um, there's no evidence that there was any discord in the family in the two or three days before John Hasek was, was harmed. So I think that um, just on the face of it, that you have to believe that this was a family that was living in peace and that Margaret's story about an intruder is completely believable. Um, I'll also point out that um, a man named William Haynes, who was in the nearest neighbor to the Hasek's, was not at the trial, did not testify at the trial. And we know that they had, uh, that uh, William Haynes had had an argument with John Hasek just a few weeks earlier during, um, at the, uh, during the election. Um, they had argued. Um, there was a reason to believe that William Haynes might have had a motive to kill John Hasek. And in fact, I, as the defense attorney, went to interview Mr. Haynes and he rode away on his horse, rode crazily into the countryside and was eventually um, put in an, in, an, in an insane asylum. So I think that there is reason to believe that someone else might have committed the murder and very little reason to believe that this woman, this woman who's a mother and a grandmother and has been a loyal mother and um, a member of our community for many years is, um, is innocent. And I would, um, I would hope that the jury would find her innocent. And uh, very eloquently put in, on both your cases, um, the actual, um, some of the speeches, uh, closing arguments, rebuttal arguments are in the book in paragraph form, because obviously they were monologues and they're, they're great reading, great lawyer oratory. And so I do recommend anyone who gets the book, don't skip past those. They, they do succinctly, as you guys put forward, not only cover the evidence, but they obviously the defense is going to play like they did in the Lizzie Borden case on that this is a woman, as you say, the family, whatever her relationship with her husband is, the, the family, the children, loved her and she was kind and caring and they would say caring for their father as well how can you believe that this this woman that's like your wife could plot it was a plot it wasn't you know a, a crime of picking up a gun a crime of passion she plotted went out to the shed picked up this axe wait for him to go to sleep how can you believe that that kind of oratory is there and you're willing to take it it's, that's all it is is a closing argument it's not evidence but it's for both of the uh, attorney's uh, statements are very powerful and but after that it goes to the jury of 12 men right so it went to the the trial ended at about 5.30, the judge said that the jury would be taken to dinner and then would deliberate through the night. Apparently, the first, we have testimony of the jury, the first vote was taken. Um, there were seven men who were in favor of a conviction, five who argued for an acquittal. Eventually, the seven prevailed. They came back. The foreman came back at 10 o'clock in the morning 
and said they had reached a verdict. Um, you know, as happens in the courtroom, they presented the, the verdict to the judge who read it aloud that Margaret Hasek was found guilty. There were several days that went by before the sentencing. The prosecution had argued that she should be sentenced to death. The judge, showing some small amount of mercy, decided, declared that she would be sent to prison at hard labor for the rest of her life. Margaret Hasek, by the way, when she heard the verdict, broke down in sobs. Her children surrounded her. Um, and she was taken away. And I would just add, um, at the sentencing, uh, Margaret did make a statement where she said, um, before my God, I am not guilty. And, and she, how long was she? Obviously, we know uh, that there is, because we keep talking about first trial, there is a second trial. So how long uh, before the appeal is granted? How long did she spend in prison? She was in prison at the Anamosa State Penitentiary for just a little over a year, during which time her lawyer, William Berry, um, filed motions for a second second trial. And Patricia can speak to, to the issues on, on the second trial. Well, the main issue was the fact that the forensics were so poor. <laughs> I mean, the acts had been handled by many people. There was no, the hairs that the prosecution used to show that they were John Hasek's hairs, um, had been kept in the sheriff's wallet. There was no established chain of custody. Um, there was no evidence that it was human blood or turkey blood on the axe. And the Supreme Court decided that the evidence had been mishandled and was not sufficient. And for any of the Lizio files listening, uh, this is again another parallel to the Lizzie Borden case, that though they had several um, axes and there was an axe head that was recovered from uh, the uh, Borden, um, you know, the, the Borden house or the uh, grounds around the house, not one could have been proved that it actually was the murder weapon. So it still left a doubt that maybe it was someone from the outside, not someone who used, you know, uh, an easily accessible weapon. But I digress. And um, Thomas, I believe there was a witness that was uh, used at the uh, second trial by the defense. Is that correct? Who claimed that a man riding a horse rode past his house shortly after the murder, riding away from the Hasek farm. Um, this rider, this mysterious horseman, was never identified. Um, but uh, William Barry, the defense attorney for Margaret Hasek, was able to posit that this was the intruder who had committed the crime, who was then fleeing from the area. So that perhaps um, added some um, a de degree of doubt for the jurors in this trial that was not evident or presented in the first trial. And so uh, uh, was this trial maybe, uh, it's not indicated how long, was it a little shorter maybe, a little more succinct, or did it go probably about the same amount of time? No, it was shorter. Um, they presented much of the evidence was the same. Um, and certainly Clammer and Barry, the two sides, were very, argued very um, vociferously for their you know, acquittal conviction. Um, 
but the jury was split at the end. There were nine men in favor of convicting her. There were three men in favor of an, of an acquittal. They couldn't reach a unanimous verdict. As we said, the sentiment in the community had certainly changed. There was a sense clearly that the women sympathized with Margaret Hasek. They understood her position. They felt whether they thought she was innocent or not, or just justified in what she had done. Um, you know, you have to wonder how much they influenced their husbands who were on the jury. Those three who stood firmly for acquittal could not be convinced. It was a hung jury. Margaret Hasek was released from prison, went home to Indianola. She didn't go back to the farm, but she had a small house in town where she lived quietly. For about how many years after? She died in 1916. Uh, died in 1916, so okay. um, the trial was in 1902. Oh, um, 15, 14, 15 years, no? Yeah, and she lived actually um, within walking distance of the courthouse where she was tried at the first trial. And when she would go to church, she would walk right past the um, courthouse and go to her church. So, And, there was and the community accepted her back. There was certainly, as opposed to Lizzie Borden. <laughs> right. Um, Lizzie Borden was not accepted back into her community. And she had a lot to say about that afterwards, uh, rubbing you know, the, no, her nose or their noses into her because, yeah, she thought that they should support her. And, you know, if she's innocent, I can see that uh, feeling. If you're not, you're not. Let's talk about Susan Glassbill, a journalist at the time who not only was a great source uh, for this uh, book, but also sort of almost an inspiration for taking on the story at all. Uh, tell us about her. Actually, my window into the case, I assign a story, um, a jury of her peers, which was written by Susan Glassbill in 1912. It was actually adapted from the play, Trifles, a one-act play, which she wrote first and then turned it into a short story, which I recommend to all of your listeners. Um, it's an excellent classic short story. I won't talk about it much except to say that a woman is accused of murder. Um, wives of the authorities come to the house. They realize through small trifling evidence, as it's seen by the men, that the woman has been abused by her husband, um, they basically see that the men are um, dismissive of the woman and have already decided that she is guilty. And so they hide the evidence that would have um, incriminated her, basically decide the men will not do justice in this case, whether they think she's innocent or um, justified in what she did is never clear. I read that story, I wondered about how Susan Glaspell, who was a very young reporter um, and a young writer when she wrote these, the play and the short story, why she felt that the legal system controlled by men um, was unable to do justice. So I went back and was able to find in the newspaper archives that Susie Glaspell had covered this case as a young reporter, the Hasek case, woman murdering her husband and traced it through, became very interested in the real facts. Um, and yes, as you point out, Jim, 
Susan Glaspell was a very important witness for us because she wrote many articles about the first trial. And where could I where could I find those? You know, I mean, I could go digging for hours or days or months, microfiche. I mean, I'd lose my mind. There's got to be a better way. Uh, If you go to our website, which is www.midnightassassin.com, you will find a section on Susan Glaspell and all of her newspaper articles about the Hasek trial from April of 1901 are on the website. And you can read them in order, chronological order, and see how Glaspell's tone and sympathy for Margaret Hasek changes from the first articles to the articles near the end of the trial. Well, Susan Glaspell was a very interesting young woman, and she became a very um, well-known author. She and her husband started the Provincetown Players, which is often called the birth of the little theater. Um, It was the place that Eugene O'Neill came as a very young playwright, produced his first plays. Um, He, of course, has become much better known than Susan Glaspell, although she was his mentor um, at the time. She waited for a number of years. She didn't write the short story or the play until 10 years after she covered the trial. It was obviously in her mind, she was thinking about what she saw as the injustice that had been perpetrated on Margaret. She was a very intellectual, ambitious, educated young woman. She had graduated from college. She wanted to be a writer. She was an intellectual. She had great um, goals for herself. I think, as Tom said, the tone of her articles really changed. And we know she paid a visit to the farmhouse and got a sense of the isolated, difficult life that Margaret Hasek lived as compared to her independent intellectual life. And she yeah, went would, off She went off from there to New York City. So she sort of entered into the somewhat into the land of glitterati and all that. The bohemian lifestyle, fighting for women's rights. Yeah, I, uh, I would also note that we have a chapter in the book about Glasgow writing the play Trifles. And um, from her memoir, we know that what inspired her was to walk across the wharf where the Provincetown Theater was and to look at the space that was available for a play. Her husband, Jig Cook, had asked her to write a play for that summer for them to produce. And as she stood there and looked at the stage, she recognized the stage as being the same size as Margaret Hasek's kitchen. And she just began to think about and imagine um, the scene in that kitchen when the men had come to look for evidence and clues. Um, And Margaret had been put away in jail and was absent from her kitchen, the place where she had spent most of I think that particular chapter was one of the most enjoyable to write and one of the most revealing, really, in terms of how that particular case had an impact on Susan Glaspell and eventually really on her career. Yes, wonderful. Um, now, obviously, you've explained um, where uh, you came, Patricia, where you came by this. How did you drag him along? And, and, and uh, you know. Well, I wrote a law review article 
about the case that was published in the Stanford Law Review that is available on our website. Um, but it was a very academic article um, filled with footnotes, as law review articles are. Um, and I really felt I was finished with it. But Tom read the article and thought that there was a lot of good material in the footnotes that I had not been able to discuss in the legal analysis. Yeah, I mean, I was just, I was so impressed with Patricia's article as a story. And um, I'm not a lawyer. And so I was um, less interested really in the legal aspects and very, but very interested in how this, the how Margaret Hasek's story was presented in court and how Susan Glaspell had taken that story to make her stories. Um, so I just thought there was a tremendous amount of material there that would make a very compelling narrative that kind of put together a crime with a legal analysis, with a literary and historical background. And I will say we spent a long time investigating this murder. We went several times to Warren County where the crime occurred. Um, we found documents. We went to the courthouse and in a drawer that the clerk opened, there was a sheaf of papers tied with a red ribbon, um, which was the inquest testimony. Who knows how long it had been there. Um, but once we got, in addition to the newspaper articles, some of the trial testimony and this original inquest, um, it was really fascinating to put it together. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say everything in the book that's in quotation marks comes from a primary source. And um, that a lot of that material, especially in the first third of the book, comes from the inquest that we found in this drawer that had been sitting there for 100 years. And I will say one of the things we did was to put in the newspaper an advertisement that said, who killed John Hasek? And we had a toll-free number um, available to call for messages. I will say we didn't get a lot of, um, there weren't a lot of people calling, but there were people who called and asked why, we didn't talk to them, just listen to their message, asked why we were investigating this. Were we trying to point a finger of guilt to someone? Um, and it was really interesting the way many people in that community had been there, their families, and knew about this case. So it was still somewhat controversial in the community. And during the research, we were actually able to find one living grandchild of the Hasics, and we were able to interview her in, in Minnesota. And we asked her, she was the daughter of Ivan, who was the youngest of the Hasek children. Um, we asked her what her father had told her about the crime. He would never speak to her about it. And she said, all he ever told us was, my father died of meanness. Well, that's an interesting epitaph, if I ever heard one. So, um, Patricia, you're still teaching law, correct? Yes. Now I know I saw I had to look again. You're uh, you're a, a literary guy. Are you are you teaching still? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm Tired. I'm writing. I finished a book last year. Um, that's about the 1932 baseball season. That has a has a shooting in it, but no um, no no real legal stuff. 
Um, but Patricia and I together have finished another true crime. The book is called The Plea, and it will be out um, this summer in July. And it's a story, it's an Iowa murder, a story of an 11-year-old boy who um, had been abused by his parents and struck back, killed him, and then was sent to an adult prison. And it's it's his story and how he um, struggled for um, freedom and redemption. Again, it's a, it took place in, eight, this one took place in 1889. Um, so no one is living who was alive at the time. So it's based on primary sources, trial testimony and inquest testimony that they, we were able to find. And of course, some newspaper reports. Um, and he lived a long life. And we talk a lot in the book, the story of the controversial debate in the legislature about what should happen to him as he matured. Um, so let's, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this has been a fascinating hour. Uh, we do want to give one more plug to the new book and where they can get in touch with you. I'm assuming on your website, they can leave comments about this uh, or they can have questions about uh, anything and, and read the, uh, the newspaper articles from the time. So let's, it's a very simple website. Tom, why don't you give it to us? Uh, www.midnightassassin.com. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, I want to thank Patricia Bryan and Thomas Wolf for joining me today on Murder Most Foul. Thank you, Jim. We thank enjoyed you, it. Jim. It was delightful. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have another example of life imitating life. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll tell your friends. They can link to all the podcasts on the podcast website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. And there, there's a link to my email, which you can leave me comments, uh, criticisms, I accept those too, or maybe a case, an interesting case that I haven't stumbled upon yet, which I'd love to cover. In the meantime, take care. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.